Welcome to the AOCPP podcast, the weekly podcast brought to you by the Association of Child Protection Professionals, where we, alongside guest hosts, share with you the latest in child protection news. Every week, we invite child protection professionals with expertise in either research or practice to give us their perspective on news related to child protection and safeguarding. There has never been a more important time to keep up with child protection and safeguarding news. But with government regulation changing daily, we realise not all frontline professionals have the time to do so. That's why we've created this podcast, to give you what you need to stay informed. Today we have a special episode for you. In these special episodes, we take a more focused look at singular issues that child protection professionals need to know about. These are often specific and urgent, so we'll be talking with a professional at the forefront of the issue. But first, let's hear a few words from the AOCPP team. Hi, I'm Maureen from the Association of Child Protection Professionals team, and I'm here to tell you about our members' networking meetings. Starting on the 11th of June, from 12pm to 2pm, these virtual meetings will give members a space to share learning, network and connect with the association membership community. Each fortnightly meeting will cover a different theme within child protection and safeguarding, and we welcome all members to join in on the discussion. Alongside this, members will be given the opportunity to shape what we do, with time to discuss our membership offer, podcast topics, training and events for the future. For questions about these network meetings or to register your interest, please email hello at aocpp.org.uk. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Tammy Banks, the Interim Consultant Director of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Marcella Leonard about the impact of increased online and technological abuse against young people during lockdown. Marcella qualified as a social worker in 1989 and since then has specialised in assessment and treatment in the fields of sexuality, sexual deviancy and sexual trauma with both victims and perpetrators. As director of Leonard Consultancy, Marcella works internationally as well as throughout the UK and Ireland in delivering specialist training, consultancy and strategic and programme development. She also has co-authored risk assessment models that are being used in New Zealand, Norway and the UK and being introduced to many more countries. Marcella continues to provide therapy for victims of childhood trauma and is a psychosexual therapist specialising in enabling victims of sexual trauma to re-experience sexuality positively. And in 2019, Marcella was awarded the NSPCC and the AOCPP's Child Protection Trainer of the Year. During COVID-19, Marcella is providing consultation for child protection professionals, developing online learning for social work students and newly qualified social workers. And she's working with several large organisations on their safeguarding policies and processes, particularly on their identification and response to technological abuse. Welcome, Marcella. Thank you very much, Tammy. That sounds very impressive, Marcella. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm very well, Tommy. Yes, um, yeah, I think it's always a wee bit embarrassing when you have to read out biogs. <laughs> but it's very nice to, for you to ask me to join you in this podcast. I, th- I think um, I have to say I've suddenly realised how really interactive podcasts are. I think before COVID, I would have been a, 
no idea about podcasts, but I think they're great. They're really good ideas. So I'm delighted to join you. Fantastic. Well, we're really delighted to have you here and really delighted to record this podcast so that we are literally in the ears of child protection professionals as they're going about their daily work. So it's a really good opportunity to be able to speak with some experts like yourself and have a little glimpse into what you're working on at the moment and what's becoming really prominent and key for you to work on during COVID-19 as well. Yeah, I mean, I think COVID-19 has dramatically affected, I mean, you know, obviously I'm self-employed, so suddenly the diary got wiped in terms of training and face-to-face training. And for a few days was a bit of what's going to really happen, but it suddenly has taken off in another direction that I don't think I had predicted at all in terms of suddenly social workers weren't necessarily getting the same access to supervision, consultation, that suddenly they were still trying to assess risks while not being able to go into the family home. They weren't being able to get one-to-one. So suddenly child protection was being, I suppose, in some way being sent down a different pathway that we're not, we haven't been used to. So it, is, it has been quite busy and busy in a very, I think, a really dramatic learning curve way that we've suddenly have to adapt to how do we still carry out that child protection role, but against and with a lot of challenges. But also I think it has brought some positives too. Yeah, and that absolutely reflects my understanding. So as you know, at the moment, I'm the interim consultant director and I have the privilege of working with AOCPP at this moment. And that's through my work with TAY training and consultancy. And what you've talked about there literally mirrors exactly what we found that initially there was that stop and people weren't sure how to move things forward. But actually very, very quickly, the sector has adapted and recognised that to safeguard vulnerable children, we need to do things differently and we need to be doing, doing them and presenting them differently now. And I would argue that's probably the reason why we're speaking on the podcast, because actually this is one of the methodologies that's out there to be able to support and help child protection professionals who are still delivering their services but having to deliver their services quite differently. They're delivering their services differently to the families, but they're also no longer, for example, you know as well as I do, for a lot of our child protection social workers, the benefit of coming back into the office and sitting and going, oh, look, what do you think about this? Or I've just found this. Or or literally when I'm on the phone looking over to somebody and going, what do you think? Or kind of run this past you, that suddenly what I'm finding is they're working from home, which, you know, as an independent and yourself, we're used to working from home because, you know, that's a lot of our lives. But when you haven't been used to working from home, that suddenly they're having to work from home, but still carry out their role in a very different way. So that turning around to your colleague or running something past somebody when they meet them over a coffee, being able to literally knock on the door of your senior or just ask the child protection nurse who's sitting beside you, that suddenly the access to those people isn't as easy. And suddenly child protection workers now come into their home. And and that's what I'm finding for their consultations is that more and more they're seeking online support. They're listening to podcasts. They're contacting the likes of myself or you know, the likes of yourselves because they can't no longer just turn around as we would have done in an office setup. So I think it's changed lots of different things, not just for what the families are experiencing, but what the social workers are experiencing. Yeah, that's really interesting because a couple of things that you said there kind of really spoke to me. One of them is about 
actually the child protection professionals, their work is coming into their home. And I was talking to somebody last week who's actually, she's a probation officer and she works with people who are convicted of domestic abuse. And usually she runs group therapy. And at the moment she's having to do phone conversations what she's finding is she's struggling individually from a personal perspective for the fact that actually she's having those conversations in her own safe space. And yep. sometimes we can forget that actually our child protection professionals are people themselves. They have homes, they have lives, and lots of them are very good at separating those. But at the moment, that separation isn't quite so easy. I think it's different when you're an independent social worker. We tend to set up our systems at home, you know, like I'm sitting here in my study. But not, not everybody has that. If you're not normally somebody who works from home, what I'm finding a lot of the professionals I'm working with, you know, they're maybe at the end of the kitchen table and or maybe they're trying to do it in their sitting room or they're trying to do it sometimes in their bedroom. Um, and that's because the only space maybe they've got with the rest of the family running around. And what I'm finding, it's, it's even just simple things because I specialize a lot in the field of sexual abuse and we're trying to maybe have a consultation. You know, the other day I'm really conscious that, you know, maybe their own wee children are running around. So they had to sort of gather up everything and go and sit in a, in a very small wee space to sort of try and use those words without their children overhearing them. Or also not to allow those words to sort of permeate their own homes. So you have those issues as well. You're trying to be your professional person. You're trying to do even a consultation. But if you're sitting at the end of the kitchen table and your spouse or partner or or even if your children are a bit growing up, they're not maybe used to their mom or dad sitting and having to talk the sexual language if we're trying to do it in a consultation. So it's not just how they're managing with the families, it's how they're managing with their own families. I think there's going to be a lot of learning, positive learning thing too, but a lot of learning as to how do we how do we do that? How do we look after each other in this? Yeah. And hopefully some of the positives that will come for that is that we are looking out for each other more and looking out for different ways to support each other to debrief. Like you're talking about online consultations, we're talking about podcasts, reaching out in different ways so that that support continues. And that's one of the reasons why for the first time in 40 years, AOCPP has made its membership free so that we can actually just get those resources out there for people that need them whether they're podcasts, whether they're videos, whether they're sending them to different websites like yours. It is about still giving them that opportunity to disconnect from their home life and move into their professional life in their mindset sometimes, because that might be the only thing that we can control at the moment is our mindset. And I think in some way, Tammy, what you're saying is it suddenly is a line people because let's be honest again, when again, you're employed, it's very different yourself employed. But when you're employed, your access to training and your access to specialists like yourselves or, you know, any of us at all who do any of the specialist work, you know, sometimes you're relying upon being lucky to get the access to the training. You're lucky if your organization can afford to send you. You're lucky if you get a space. What I'm finding, and this by no means is meant to be in any way an arrogancy at all, it's not, but I'm finding you know, I have a whole batch of newly qualified social workers who are just literally come out into the workforce and suddenly they're saying, that's brilliant. We can get free access to AOCCPP. We can get free access to Marcella Leonard's stuff and get free access to that. And, you know, suddenly they're realizing these people are very accessible. Yeah. Whereas maybe before they weren't. So I think that's why I'm saying, I think there's a lot of positives around accessibility of information and accessibility of being able to access free material, but still good quality material. 
So I think certainly becoming much more available through podcasting, through making our material available. We've suddenly, I think, re-energized staff to feel, do you know what? Actually, there are some really good resources out there and you don't have to feel alone. And do you know what? Those people who you think, well, gosh, I'm never going to get on that person's training. Do you know what? Here's the stuff. Here's the material. So I think there's a lot of positives, Tammy, I think, in it, which is really good. And I'm delighted AOCCP is, is free because there's a lot of people at the moment need it because of where they're having to work on their own. And gosh, knows when we're going to be able to get face-to-face training again. So I think this is the way to go. Absolutely. And we've got some exciting plans coming up with regards to online conferences and webinars and networking meetings and things like that, specifically to help connect people together and keep building that community. Because I think we're looking for that online community a little bit more. And I think you're absolutely right when you say that it feels to an extent that we're empowered to actually look externally and go, where can I find that support? Where can I find that specialist information? Where can I find that advice? And that's really, really powerful in itself. Yeah, because I think for me, what I've been doing during COVID is I offered free consultations to any casework based in Northern Ireland who are involved with any sex and violent cases. So that's been free consultations. And I've been not about being bombarded, but that certainly has come through a lot. And as a result of that, I started collating themes that people were worried about. And I went then to a colleague who has an, an app and we've just bombarded and put out loads of podcasts out there, safety plan and stuff out there. And I've done some narrated PowerPoints. And I can't believe I now know all this digital technology stuff that I didn't know beforehand. Um, but, you know, oh my God, I had no idea uh, that you can do narrated PowerPoints and oh my God, you know, all these things you can do, you know, I didn't know. So what I'm now doing is I'm sort of being responsive. So if a social worker is ringing me up with a specific issue, I'm then doing a very quick podcast to sort of put out to other colleagues and what they're finding is that's been really good because that's connecting them while they're sitting at home thinking am I the only one with this type of issue on my case when previously they'd have been sitting in their office turning around to somebody and saying look at what I've just had and some of those have been issues very much around you know around online children are spending a lot more time online a lot more accessibility to pornography I think the issue is because parents are now having to work from home themselves, there is interestingly less supervision than there would be if their parents were working in their offices, which is a strange thing. I think we're thinking because kids are at home now all the time with their parents, they're going to be fully supervised. But actually, parents are trying to do their own work. For example, now I'm in this study. So we're trying to do our own work. So what's tend to happen is parents are saying, look, here's the iPad, look at that while I do this meeting for an hour. So children are probably in some ways potentially less supervised at the moment of what they're doing online. What's interesting is I remember, I think the first time that I came to an event where you were talking and you were talking about pornography and actually my children now are 14 and 11. So I think they would have probably been about seven and nine And you said something uh, along the lines of if pornography is the first thing that children see, then how that imprints and how then they're connecting everything back to the first instance they saw sexual behaviour. And if that's pornography, then actually you can take a very long time to work back from that. And I remember going back and having a conversation with my nine-year-old at that point. And I took some of your tips, actually, because you talked about using the example of 
different things on telly. And I remember going back to her and talking to her about EastEnders and saying to her, is EastEnders like real life? And she was like, no, mummy, no, mummy. It's not like real life at all. It's a dramatic version of real life. And they make it look like this and they make it look like that. And we'd have this big conversation about EastEnders. And then I connected it and related it really specifically to sexual activity. And my 14-year-old, she still refers to that. Now, rolling her eyes, don't get me wrong, when she Mm. refers to it. But that really made quite a difference. And I remember how powerful that came across to me in training that I was on that you were delivering a good few years ago when I look at my 11 and 14 year old now they're absolutely doing what you're describing so I see them in the morning and set them up for school and their education for the day I then have work all day their dad's Mm -hmm. out at work and I check in with them on and off all day and see what they're doing I work in safeguarding so I do go through and we had a conversation about some of the different different ways of ensuring different platforms that they use are safe. And I go through that with them. However, I work in safeguarding. So when you then consider that to people who are dealing with all of this at the same time, and they have their children, and they potentially haven't been on the Marcella Leonard training five years back or (laughs) whenever it was, they need the information that you're sharing. It is so powerful, makes such a difference. And I think what's really key, and the one thing I've been saying to social workers is I said, look, COVID is an incredibly unusual time. What I'm saying to them is, look, don't make a presumption that it's out of lack of worry or out of lack of not caring or parents not wanting to know. We're all struggling in this new environment. So what we need to be very aware of is schools, appropriately so, are putting a lot of their material online. And they're putting that generally in very safe online forums that they're sharing homework. However, the difficulty is you're relying on the pupil, on the child, to just stay on that site and not go off that site because suddenly they've got the iPad, it's theirs for two hours. And their so, screen time has taken off. That, yeah. Absolutely, and their screen time's taken off that they normally get. So what they're trying to do is, like we all did as children, when you were meant to be doing whatever, when, when you saw mommy's back was turned, you sort of, well, I'll do this as well. Firstly, is, it is about making sure that we don't, particularly now as lockdown's going to happen, what I think we're going to be faced with is a, a tsunami of referrals because suddenly children are going to come back out and say, oh, but I did this and I watched that and I did this and I was able to do that. And suddenly professionals are going to be hearing that going, oh my gosh, what have those children seen? What have they been exposed to? So I think there'll be a first thing. One of the things I'm advising in consultations is not to immediately assume it has its basis in abuse, not to immediately assume that the parents are purposely showing them. So in other words, not to make an assumption, but actually let's just look at this. Children are now watching, we're all relying on watching a lot more TV than ever before. So what I'm finding is, is that it's about getting them to really focus on what would we be worried about? So in other words, focus time. So it's about the quantity of how long have they been watching, but it's also about the theme. So what were they Googling? If it is a 12-year-old who was Googling how to kiss, well, it's understandable they might end up with some inappropriate, but what they were initially Googling was okay. So it's about looking for what were the themes, what were they searching for, what was the, the quantity, what was the amount of time they were spending on it, and really beginning to get an understanding of, rather than, I suppose, always making the assumption that we jump immediately to negativity, let's ask some core questions to start the conversation with parents in terms of, 
So what was it that triggered you to be worried about this? Rather than always making the assumption that every element of pornography is negative, we can't do that because it's it's understandable. It's, It's on our surface web. You can just Google it. And it doesn't help parents if we go red flagged a bit at all. We need to have some core questions, which is what I'm saying to people is, so you're finding out about what websites, what were they searching for, what were the typing in? And if that is an innocent starting, then let's look at that. So then we separate out the ones that have sought it through dark web, that they have sought it through illegal sites, that they have searched for coercive, aggressive, abusive pornography, which is obviously where we'd be very, very worried about. And it's making sure we see it on a continuum as opposed to initially overreacting, not everyone say overreacting, but initially always getting anxious that any mention by a parent of it is is always negative. So the safety plan and I've been looking at with them has been around exactly what you're saying. From safeguarding, it's about do they know what sites they're on? Is there an agreement? Is there time limit on FaceTime, on their like, screen time? Have they got parental controls? So, for example, you know, you've mentioned your children. What you would want your 14-year-old to watch and length of time would be different to your 11-year-old. And the fact that you can actually monitor the 14-year-old can have these restrictions, but the 11-year-old can have different restrictions. And parents tend not to know that you can separate that. They think it's just turn off the Wi-Fi and that's it all sorted. (laughs) So I think it's really about education, really, for parents. And I think child protection professionals, we need to get better at understanding technology and so we can help educate parents. I think that's one of the key things I find now in COVID. It's technology advice. What's interesting there is I think reflecting back on this last seven weeks, I think that one of the positives potentially of COVID is the fact that it's forcing lots of people who are really resistant to technology to embrace it in their daily life, which I think will connect them with their teenagers. I think it will connect them with the next generation. And it's interesting because when I talk to parents and when I talk to child protection professionals about technology, I talk very much about actually recognising that this is the young person's world. We can separate it in our minds all we want, online world and real world, but actually for our young people, this is the world that they're growing up in. And it's about supporting them to grow up safely within that world, just like we do when we're teaching them to cross a road or go to the park or walk to school on their own. Sometimes we're full of fear because we don't understand the online world. And so we're putting those barriers into place and saying, just say no until they're 14, just say no until they're 16, just say, well, I remember very much as a teenager that as soon as somebody just said no, I was a little bit more interested. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. And I think for me, I think you're right, it's about ease safety, but it's also safeguarding safety. So suppose for me, it's about how do you do that? And for example, quite a few consultations I have had interestingly have also included a lot of children who have autism or certainly some autistic traits and by the very nature of that become quite obsessive maybe about what they're doing and harder for two consultations I did were actually with foster parents where they were struggling to try to manage technology because with the autistic traits of the young people in terms of becoming quite obsessed about the behaviours. And I think it is about that bit of, again, it's not as simple as just turn off the Wi-Fi and it's not as simple as your removal of the device. It is about technology management. And certainly one of the things I've done in the safety plan and that I know is going to be free access for everybody through AOCCP is the safety planning, but ensuring that we always have technology management as part of any child protection safety planning and that we, we do that. And we call it about technology management as opposed to refusal and take the device and you can't do this and you can't do that. 
because that's only going to immediately react and cause the child to become more annoyed with the parent as opposed to let's see how we can work together in this in a safe way. So certainly for those cases, what I've been doing is advising the foster parents and the parents as to how do they best manage the technology in a safe way, but not feeling as if the child has lost something. Because again, that's their only maybe contact to the outside world and to their friends, which they need as well. So it's about trying to balance the need for it, which is important, versus, you know, the risk with it. Are you seeing more risky behaviours with regards to children putting themselves at more risk or there being more more focus and potential perpetration from other people that are taking advantage of the fact that more people are online and there's possibly less restrictions for children in some circumstances at the moment. What we're finding is that we're having a lot more of young people putting themselves at risk in terms of the material they're putting on. And again, because of probably less supervision, but also the fact that technology, everybody's using Zoom, everybody's using different activities, so different sort of modiums in terms of getting their message across. So what we're getting is certainly a lot more young people, because they're having to now do more digital communication with their friends, there's more, I suppose, testing each other, right? There's more saying, well, that bit of you show me yours, you show me mine, that they're now, their relationships, their romantic relationships are now having to be carried out very much through face-to-face, through technology. And as such, we're getting a lot more of exposure of themselves and a lot more of, I suppose, let's be honest, sharing an indecent image of themselves. But the difficulty is them not realising the law in this in terms of that actually they're creating an indecent image of themselves. So we are getting a lot more of that because young people are now forced at the moment to do a lot more of online activity. So none of their um, development has stopped within COVID-19. If you're thinking from a hormone perspective, if you're thinking of a building relationship perspective, actually what is happening is the normalisation of technology. And I know I've had discussion with people where their children just have their iPads on 95% of the time in, in the corner of the room whilst they're getting on with their daily life, irrelevant of what they're doing for some company so that they've got their friends round, etc., but it also breaks down those protective barriers because it's normalising that technology and that, I guess, view to the online world. I suppose the problem for me is, and this is suppose it's all as the benefit of ourselves as child protection professionals now, in the same way as we had to learn about every other type of abuse, I think as child protection professionals, we now need to know more about technology abuse. Because, for example, I think it's about making sure we understand what are the offences, what could children do, what are offences, what potentially could happen. But also, I think as well as that is, you've just given the example of children maybe keeping their um, iPad in the corner so their friends can watch what they're doing and vice versa. But actually, there are apps that can hack into that. And for all they know is that somebody could actually be recording that and live streaming that. So I think it's about making sure we're more alert to what are the apps that can hack in. We've heard very much, for example, about where children have been exposed and professional meetings have been exposed to people coming into their Zoom meetings because in terms of the privacy settings haven't been set. So I think for me, one of the is opposing me going forward from this because I don't think we're ever going to go back now. I think because particularly organizations, they are going to have to continue this technology use of work and employment. Therefore, we can't go back now. They can't suddenly say, right, that's it now, put the machines away. So I think now one of the strives I think we need to do as child protection professionals is make ourselves much more aware of not just what technology is there, but its capability 
how do we ensure that safety, but also in a way that doesn't make us feel as if we're taken away from young people because we don't want to take away from them. But for me, the concerning bit, and certainly in the consultations I'm getting, is about the increase of accessing pornography, the increase of young people engaging in sexualized behavior online with their friends, with their sort of partners. And then I suppose the difficulty is when that partnership breaks down, what happens to that material, but also as well as that of going on to websites. A significantly worrying case I have at the moment we're managing is a young girl who is autistic and she has put um, some material of herself online and unfortunately that material which she thought she was giving to another to a, a boyfriend turned out not to be and she's now quite significantly being blackmailed so we're, we're into that whole difficulty for her around her parents trying to manage it but equally to take away her phone is a very difficult because that creates a whole lot of other aggressive behaviors which we don't want to do so again this is where i'm saying it. so with that social worker i'm really advising it is about technology management it is about understanding what are safe sites that she can still go on to it's about supervised screen time it's about the parents knowing how to stop the access to her device but that she can still for example come to the family room where there's a, a larger desktop computer if she wants to do but the parents are in the background so it's about how do we put in safety planning that is a staged process and in acknowledging how particularly if they have autism what are the things that might trigger if we just go for a blanket no which sometimes in these scenarios people feel easier just stop it but actually that was causing quite significant self-harm for that girl when there was a sense of that's what was going to happen. So it's about a gradual understanding of how can I make technology work for us from a safeguarding perspective, as opposed to technology has to be stopped. It's a challenge, but I think it is something we're going to have to do. I think particularly now we've all been forced into so much use of technology. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think going back to what you said earlier about from a child protection professional perspective, it is about actually that element of upskilling ourselves and learning and also recognising. I know in a lot of work that I do, I have to take the time to stop and learn about the community that I'm working within. And actually my frame of reference, my landscape, my experiences is so significantly different than that community that I'm operating within. That If I didn't take the time to do that and to understand it, actually we wouldn't be able to work positively together because there'd be too much of incongruence between our understanding. And I think when you're talking about child protection professionals and online understanding, I do feel that's exactly what you're saying. Actually, we need to step into the understanding of the online community that the teenagers and the young people in our lives that we're trying to protect and right down to really, really young children now are growing up with a device in their hand and being able to have a variety of different access and there's some brilliant elements to online access I don't know how I would have managed with COVID-19 if I didn't have all of the different technology that I do have but actually I need to step into that online community from the perspective of the young people around me and have a true understanding of what it is doing for them and what the risks are so that I can support them effectively within it and do that safety planning. 
Yeah, and I think it is that key bit of recognising, I mean, I look back whenever I used to oversee this public protection arrangements here in Northern Ireland, whenever we first had people who had committed, as it was known then, as internet offences, it was very simple in our sex offences prevention orders. We could just say no access to the internet, you know, but you can't do that anymore, you know. So I've been advising families where there already is a convicted sex offender who has committed sexual abuse through the use of technology, as opposed to now calling it internet offending. And I mean, the safety planning has also been for their partner. So how do they manage? Because again, what I found is that the social workers coming to me now around the consultations, their safety planning was very much around, you know, he can't bath the children, he can't do sort of dressing, he can't do personal hygiene with the children, but had nothing in the safety plan relating at all anything to technology. And that was the same for, again, young people who have committed technology-based harmful sexual behaviour. They were stopping all sorts of things, but the social worker just didn't know how do you include technology management in that safety planning. So I think it's about making sure we think about that element of it. It is a challenge because it's changing all the time. But I think the first thing we need to do is name it. And we need to name that in this family, technology is both very positive, very helpful. It has lots of really good beneficial things we can do. But also within this family, technology can be a risk. And we need to name that risk in the same way as we would have named, you know, neglect. We would have named alcohol. We would have named drugs. We would have named anything else that we saw as a risk factor. I think we have to get better at naming things now as technology in this house is both a positive, really good, but it's also a risk. And how are we going to manage that risk? And I think maybe reframing it in that way for our child protection professionals would be really important. And a more transparency about the role of technology in both strengths and risks. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think exactly what you say, we're being forced into having to do this um, and having to do this now, I think for a long time, years, in fact, as technology has advanced and advanced quicker and quicker, we're always one step behind, but we're we're trying to catch up. I think one of the things that COVID-19 has done is made us go, right, okay, stop. We have to catch up now because otherwise there's going to be too much of a distance and that will be risky because risk is about that information that you're not aware of, isn't it? That's when it's risky. And yeah. it's when you learn to assess and then you move into management, we manage risks all day, every day within our life. But we have the fear attached to the unknown. So hopefully one of the positives will be that actually we catch up with regards to our understanding of those online risks and how we can navigate within them and support people effectively rather than go to one extreme or the other. You know that myself and Simon Hackett, we authored the most up-to-date harmful sexual behaviour adolescent assessment model, the M3. And in that model, we've looked at technology as a key element in terms of HSV. And it has been about looking at that wider domain within families. The model no longer has low, medium and high. What we're encouraging social workers and any child protection professional who's trained to use the model is to really look beyond just, I suppose, just a behaviour that we look now more the multiple domains in a young person's life and we look at you know sexually non-sexually how they are their development their trauma background and much more trauma-informed understanding and I think we need to recognise now COVID will have been for many people I think we've all suffered a level of trauma with it because suddenly our whole lives have changed and how we've not been able to see our parents or families and all of that plus the significant deaths that have happened. So I think we have to accept we've now all experienced a level of that trauma. But for some of the young people we're dealing with, 
that trauma will have been hugely escalated because of COVID in terms of suddenly not having access to all of the other child protection professionals, like their teachers and nurses and health visitors and everybody else who they see. So I think what we need to now do is probably engage in understanding technology management, but in a trauma-informed manner. Absolutely. And I suppose the trauma-informed practice now, you know, I first worked in trauma whenever I qualified in 1988 because I worked in a specialist service. So for me, I feel it's, you know, 20 odd, gosh, my gosh, it's 30 years now um, of working in trauma. But I think now we need to recognize that people are coming out of something that will have had, not everybody will have had a good seven weeks. Um, nobody will have had, there have been days when we've all struggled. So I think it's about helping our professionals now look at this so it's trauma-informed practice by looking at the technology management, I think, has been the two really strong, I suppose, themes that have been coming through the consultations I've been doing. And the other one then is, has been domestic abuse as well. Brilliant. Thank you, Marcelo. It's been fantastic to talk to you today and I've really appreciated your time. Well, thank you. It's been really good. Hopefully been very helpful. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Uh, well, we'd love to have you back on in the future. I think I'd said off air how we could talk about lots of different things. So hopefully <laughs> we'll have you back again and cover some of the other elements from the consultations that you've been running. And I think it would be really useful as well post-COVID-19 to look back in hindsight and with some reflection on how things have changed and how we can continue supporting child protection professionals as they continually change, because I think we are about to see some real fast movement, as you've explained there. Yeah, and I think it will be important as well for to recognise what are also some of the good practice that we could probably continue on that I think has made us do that, as well as obviously some of the things that we have to now in hindsight look back on. But I think we should see COVID-19 as an opportunity to change and harness that as an opportunity time to change some of our practice and some of the things we just did because that's the way we've always done them. So I think harnessing COVID as an opportunity to change, I think, is, is, a, is an important way to look forward. Yeah, I absolutely agree. There'll be lots of things that support us to work differently and hopefully connect as a child protection professional community and support each other. So Marcella, is there anything final that you would like to say to our listeners today? Only in terms of firstly, look after yourselves. I think it is an incredibly difficult time we're in. And I think probably more look after yourselves now as we begin to hear people's stories and hear how they've managed and hear how it's impacted on them. And that's both children and parents. And I think it's about us taking stock and listening to the context in which everybody's experiences have happened, because this has been tough for everybody. So we, we can't assume that some things didn't happen. I think we have to assume things have happened. So let's put context to it. So I think look after yourselves, take time as we now manage the onslaught of what I think is about to happen. And hopefully this has been of some use and certainly more than happy for people to look at some of the resources which I know you're going to put onto the website. Thank you for listening to the AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you'd like discussed in future episodes, please email us at hello at aocpp.org.uk. And if you'd like any more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, including our free membership offer, visit the website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.